Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at Mike Roth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth, and I'm here today with Bill Scarvala from the Harmony Hill Winery. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Thank you. Before we get started, let me remind everyone about some of the shows that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Next Thursday, we have Raymond Sonoff of Sonoff Consulting Services. He's going to talk about a different way to look at building a strong web presence at a reasonable cost. And then on Friday, a week from today, we're going to have Jeff Weiland from Jack Weiland Builders. And then the following week on Thursday, we're going to have Ryan Reibold from Infotech, a new credit card processing company here in Cincinnati. And then on November 1st, we're going to have Oscar Jarnicki, who is one of the owners of the Atlantis, which is a new rehab center here in the Eastgate area. And he's also a part owner of the Eastgate Village. Sandler events coming up in the Business Builder Series. We still have a couple of seats. I probably mean about two or three left for the Seven Deadly Sins of Sales program coming up next Wednesday, the 16th, at the Clovernook Country Club. That runs from 11.30 to 1.15 p.m. That's a high-level training and networking event for business owners. It costs $25 a head. If you are interested, call Carmen here at 513-753-9400 to RSVP. Continuing, the Sandler Foundations program is running on Wednesday mornings. And coming up in November, we have on the 20th of November, that's a Wednesday, the Sandler Cold Call Camp, which is a program designed for people who have to make cold calls. Probably a lot of good stuff. If you're a Sandler client, then you know what the Sandler Client Appreciation and Auction is, and that's coming up on the last day of classes of the year, December 18th. Great day to come back. So, Bill, you were born in southwest Pennsylvania in a small town about 30 miles east of Pittsburgh, raised in a blue-collar working-class neighborhood, started working at the age of 10, delivering newspapers, shoveling snow, and other art jobs until the actual age of 16, when you started working in a fast-food restaurant and a local A&P. I'm not even sure if A&P is still in business. No, they're not. They're gone. The neighborhoods in and around Pittsburgh area were diversified by both religion and ethnicity. Bill served Mass in nearby Slovak Catholic Church, St. Helens, but could have walked into any number of other churches of different eccentricities. So you grew up in a small town outside of Pittsburgh, not in the city of Pittsburgh. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Grew up in North Braddock. It's about 30 miles east of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We we seriously looked at moving to Pittsburgh in 2000 and decided that Pittsburgh was really a big city. 
Well, you have to remember, too, Michael, that's when Pittsburgh was. You came out of your uh, house in the morning, and you had to turn the windshield wipers on to knock the soot off of your uh, off your car windows. That's when the steel industry was um, running like crazy. Yeah. My father and my father-in-law were both steel workers. So. Yeah. There isn't, is there any more steel in Pittsburgh? I think there may have been the return of a couple uh, mills, but I'm not positive. They must be running real clean because we occasionally have our Sandler meetings out in Pittsburgh, and it's it's really beautiful downtown, Three Rivers. Yes. Better political jurisdiction since it's all one city, all one county. Big political mistake here in in this, this arena. I'll see how many of our friends from Northern Kentucky complain about that event. <laughs> so Mary is a childhood sweetheart who had been dating through high school. And why did you move to Cincinnati, Bill? When I went into the service back in 72, Patty, my wife Patty, came out here to Cincinnati. She had graduated from nursing school in Pittsburgh and came out, moved out here to take a job at Christ Hospital. Um, she was a nurse anesthetist. Actually, she just retired this past January after 35 years of nurse anesthesia. But I followed her okay. to Cincinnati. That's interesting. I, I was a trailing spouse, too. We came here 50, 22 years ago from Los Angeles. My wife was with Hines, and she, they told her, you're fired in L.A. or moved to Cincinnati. There you go. And we looked at it as a free two-year two pass out of L.A. Before you uh, opened the, the winery, What line of work were you in? I was an emergency room nurse. I spent 22 years as an ER nurse, graduated from Mount St. Joe, uh, had done some uh, radiology work before then. I also have an associate degree in radiology from University of Cincinnati, and I actually started as a radiologic technologist doing CAT scans until I got to the point where I had gone as far as I possibly could in radiology, that's when I decided then to go back to school and get a BSN in nursing. So, okay, I graduated from Mount St. Joe. And why did you and your wife buy a piece of property? We had, first of all, grown up, like I said, outside of Pittsburgh. So the homes there are stacked one on top of the other with about a sidewalk's distance between the homes. So we essentially were looking just to expand a little bit. We moved to Cincinnati. We lived in an apartment first. And then we bought our first home in Delhi in Mount Vernon Estates in Delhi, and it was a Ryan a box home, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a good starter. But you would come home at the end of the day, and the neighbors would all gather in your driveway with a drink in their hand. And it got to the point where we just needed to be able to move away from <laughs> all of the people that um, that would come to the house on a regular basis. So we decided in 1990 we were going to go ahead and get start shopping around for some property. Mm-hmm. And our uh, dogs routinely got kicked out of East Fork State Park. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, because we would allow them to go off leash. And this mm-hmm. is in the dead of winter and would never fail. We'd go to the campground and we'd let them go off leash and the ranger would come and kick us out. So we decided then (laughs) at that point we were going to go ahead and buy property. We shopped and shopped and finally found what eventually turned into Harmony Hill, which was just a small acreage of property to begin with. And then we ended up uh, adding on to it as as we went. 
uh, let's see, that would have been 19, uh, 1991, I believe, is when it was. Okay. We started with seven acres, it grew to 15, and then eventually we bought an additional 53, so that now we're at 70 acres. You have 70 acres yeah. of, of land? Uh-huh. How much of the 70 are uh, under cultivation for grapes? There, for grapes, there's about three and a half acres of grapes, 3,500 vines on three and a half acres. The rest of the farm is cash rented out for uh, soybeans. We grow some hay. Uh, we used to grow medicinal herbs on the farm. We did that before we decided to diversify the farm and go into grapes. So, mm-hmm. so it's like you have a sharecropper come in? and Yeah, basically you cash rent fields out for local farmers to grow soybeans and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any plans in the future to add more acreage for grapes? No, I'm getting too old. I'm getting too old. I'm getting too old. Yes. Well, grapes don't do too well for six or seven years, right? That's correct. Well, the, the actually, the, three years is a rule of thumb. You put a grapevine in the ground and uh, you pull the fruit off of it for the first three years. Mm-hmm. At the end of three years, you can start taking a very small crop, and then every subsequent year, the production of the grapevine gets larger and larger until it maxes out. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many years is the are the grapes in the ground at Harmony? We started planning the, the planting process of the vineyard back in 2000. We actually planted the vineyards in 2001. They, we, as I said earlier, we had medicinal herbs growing on the farm at the time. We had to make a decision about whether we wanted to actually increase the production of medicinal herbs. We grew echinacea, codonopsis, ginseng ashwagandha, a lot of the stuff that you can buy at the uh, health food stores. We grew it, we tinctured it out, and we would sell that in small little one-ounce or two-ounce bottles. Mm -hmm. We had to decide either to increase production or diversify a little bit. Our main concern, Mike, was back in 2000, we were afraid that the federal government was going to step in and start regulating the small farmers, especially in medicinal herbs which did turn out to be true, by the way. But we decided instead of uh, increasing production of the medicinals, that we would go ahead and we would diversify by putting in some grapevines. Our original intention was to plant the grapevines and just sell the grapes to other wineries down here in the valley. Yeah, that's a good idea. One thing led to another. We started to win some significant amateur awards with our jug wine. We were making basement wine at the time. We won some significant basement wine. Basement wine, yeah. Well, that's not that's a term that some of our listeners might not understand. What yeah, does that, that mean? mean? It just means you're making wine in your you're making wine in your basement in a glass jug in your basement. That's the early stages of a winemaker's career. But we uh, ended up then deciding in 2003, rather than selling that crop out, to go ahead and use it to make our own wine, and we actually became a commercial winery then in October of 2003. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to become licensed by the state of Ohio? Oh, that was an absolute nightmare. That was probably the worst two months of my life. So you did two months. Yeah, but it's, it wasn't only the state of Ohio, but it was, the, was the fe, it was the federal government, it was the local health department, it was the EPA because we were an agricultural entity that was going to have uh, solid waste from uh, making wine, which is the grapes, mm-hmm. the skins, and the seeds, and all that stuff. Stems and all that stuff. I, yeah, I had to submit all kind of different proposals to the EPA 
and to everybody and their grandmother in order to get this thing pushed through, and it was an absolute nightmare. But we did it, and we're in a dry township, which complicated things even more. Whoa. Yeah, Tate, Tate Township in Bethel is dry. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, there still are dry townships here in southwest Ohio. It's pretty so scary. But if, if we went out to your winery... You could buy wine, you could drink it on site, you can uh, buy it to go, you can buy it by the glass, by the sample, but the only reason I'm allowed to do that is because we have an agricultural exemption because of the fact that we grow the fruit. Now, if I didn't grow the grapes and I trucked the grapes into Tate Township, mm-hmm. I would not I would be able to make wine, but I wouldn't be allowed to sell it. Wow. So there's the distinction. Because of the fact that we are uh, we grow our own fruit there, we're in a state winery, because of the fact that we grow our own fruit, uh, we are allowed to sell the, sell the alcohol product in Tate Township. So what, what an interesting loophole. Yes. I was wondering why you called yourself a state. Yes, an estate winery just means that you grow the fruit on the estate that goes into the wines that are sold. Mm-hmm. So, so on an annual basis, uh, Bill, how many cases of wine do you make? We produce about 1,200 cases a year right now. Mm-hmm. So we started, I think, the very first year we went commercial, Mike, in 2003. We started with 300 case production. That, one, that of course, kind of flew out of the winery rather quickly. Okay. So we've now built it up to the point where, through additional tankage and uh, cooperage, and we've built it up to the point where we can uh, produce 1,200 cases a year. Good. Uh, Bill has agreed to answer questions from uh, the listeners. If you have a question for Bill, you need to call in at 646-595-4916. We'll be answering the questions and screening the calls during the commercial breaks. Bill, one more question before we uh, go to commercial break. How many types of wine do you actually make? We have nine different wines on our menu right now. Nine? Yes. Wow, that's a we lot. Have, we have nine different wines. It covers everything from the dry whites and dry reds through uh, the off dries and into the semi-sweets. I don't make any sweet wine except our dessert wine. I know Ohio is real big. The state of Ohio has a history of being um, mostly sweet wine producers, I just, I don't know, I just have difficulty doing that. You know, we have people come in the winery even now that say, well, what do you have in a sweet red wine? And I don't know, in my, my opinion is those two words should not, those two words should not go together, sweet red wine or three words. But we make a, an off-dry uh, red wine that's very nice. Um, and then we make, make two different dessert wines or three different dessert wines from fruit that we grow there at the wine, at the winery as well. Good. When we come back after the commercial break, we'll talk about the individual types of wine you make. Uh, I'm going to ask Jimmy Fox of uh, Tip Club to uh, come in and tell everyone a little bit about Tip Club. I, I am the sponsor of Tip Club here in Cincinnati. The next meeting is uh, next week, October 17th. That's Thursday from 7.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. We do start the meeting promptly at 7.30. And we're a pretty good core group here. Jimmy, tell everyone about Tip Club. Hi, I'm Jimmy Fox of Tip Club. Tip Club is a professional networking organization whose members help each other succeed. We meet once per month and provide a forum where business-to-business professionals are able to connect with more desirable opportunities and build long-term strategic partnerships. 
I'm inviting Cincinnati Business Talk listeners to come to our free networking event. You'll have the opportunity to meet new people, share leads and referrals, and grow your business through strategic alliances. Membership in our Cincinnati group is open to only one person per specific trade or occupation. Business-to-business professionals only, please. We do not accept multi-level marketing or recruiting-driven memberships. This is our only group in Cincinnati. We'll meet on the third Thursday of the month from 7.30 to 9 a.m. at Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, 4357 Ferguson Drive, Cincinnati, Ohio. To reserve a seat, please go to www.tipclub.com and click on the Events tab at the top of the page. Then, just scroll down the list until you come to the Cincinnati event. Or you may call 800-798-0270. That's 1-800-798-0270. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next networking event. Thanks, Jimmy. This is Mike Roth with Bill Scarlava. Oh, boy, I butchered your name again. Again, Scavarla. Scavarla. Bill Scavarla. 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 Just don't call me late for supper. Okay. Tell me what you want to call me. Picking up where we left off in the last uh, segment, uh, Bill, why don't you tell our listeners about the types of wine and varieties that, that you have. You have reds. We have reds. We have whites. We have a bl- We make a blush. We should probably start just talking, since the wine begins in the vineyard, let's talk about the, the types of grapes that we grow first. Yeah, that's cool, yeah. The uh, the varieties of grapes that we have grown in our vineyard are, uh, are mostly uh, French-American hybrids. French-American hybrids are just uh, French uh, grapes that have been Crossbred, hybridized with American varieties in order to make them a little more, I guess, sustainable in our in our uh, weather here in the Ohio River Valley. Yeah, we're, climate. we're yes. not in the south of France. Right, you got it. We're not in the south of France. So the uh, the varieties that we have, some of you may be unfamiliar with. Uh, those that are in the industry, I'm sure, will know the names. But we have one called Saval Blanc. S-E-Y-V-A-L. It sounds like I'm saying uh, Sauvignon, but it's not Sauvignon Blanc. It's actually Sable Blanc. It's a uh, white uh, variety. It's across a Chardonnay. Okay. Uh, and it makes a wine, in my case, very similar to a Chardonnay. We uh, make a barrel-aged and a uh, uh, barrel-fermented uh, white wine, dry white wine. It's very fruity. We in call an it, actual barrel. Yeah, we call it Woodwind. Yeah, that's Good. our... It's uh, better than the... That's our stainless steel tanks many others use. Well, I mean, there are some. We we do have some wines that we make in stainless steel. The rest of the white varieties we do make in stainless steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do like to have one that has a tiny bit of oak in it. It It is a real soft oak profile because of the fact that it's actually fermented in the barrel and not just aged. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's one. The other grape varieties that we have, Traminette is a Gewurztraminer. Uh, hybrid sounds German. Yeah, it's Trama. Yes, Gebert's Traminer. Actually, they pronounce it Gebert's Traminer over there, but it's Traminer, Traminette. We grow Traminette. 
Mm -hmm. Um, We make a wine called Ovation. It's very spicy. It's great at Thanksgiving. We serve it chilled because it's got a little bit of residual sugar. There's a couple things that people should know about my style as winemaker. First of all, we grow the fruit there at the at the farm. Mm-hmm. You, you can sit at the winery and look right out at the grapes. So it's it's imperative to me that all of the grapes or all of the wines that we make are very fruit forward. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even to a fault because I've had people tell me that my Cabernet Franc is a little bit too fruity. But I figure we work so hard to get them grapes in a bottle that I would rather you taste the fruit and recognize the fruit. I will uh, and please. People in California that are making Chardonnay, don't call me, but they they are ruining California Chardonnays because what they do is they make the alcohol so high now and the oak level so high and the, the secondary fermentation so buttery that you cover up the taste of the grapes. So it's hard to find really good Chardonnays out of California anymore because mm-hmm. they're pushing alcohols to 14 and a half and you've lost the taste of the grape. We try to really concentrate or I try to concentrate as a winemaker on on bringing out the wines as an expression of that particular So what fruit. percentage of alcohol are your wines? Our, well, it depends. Like our Chardonnay style, our woodwind is about, I think this past uh, vintage it was about 12 and a half percent. And that changes depending on the season. You know, a season where you drive uh, sugars way up, you got to remember that uh, making wine is nothing more than the conversion of sugar into alcohol with the use of yeast. So mm-hmm. it's all organic chemistry. The higher the sugar level in the grape, the higher potential alcohol you have for that particular wine if you take it to dry. Now, uh, about about a year ago, I went through the uh, wineries in the Finger Lakes of New uh-huh. York. Yes. Had a great time up oh, there. Oh, it's a great, great place for sure. Yeah, we uh, we drove up there, stayed at one of the wineries, and hired a a car and driver to take us around to nineteen wineries in a day or two. There you go. Uh, By the time you got to the end of the wineries, did you were you actually tasting anything anymore? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I figured we'd buy three or four bottles of wine. We sure. knew, we had two cases when we came home. Sure. Yeah, uh, that's what they hope for. Right, but what I noticed, Bill, is that most of the wineries up in upstate New York were adding uh, substantial amounts of sugar right. uh, to the finished product. Are you doing the same thing here? No, actually, we do not, and that's one of the things that makes uh, my style a little bit different. We don't pack add sugar into the wines. A lot of the a lot of the wineries in Ohio will do that. They'll run it dry because it's very easy to run a, a fermentation dry. Mm-hmm. Once you have that fermentation active and the the yeast cells are multiplying and they're consuming. Sh- sugar and some carbohydrates and converting them over into alcohol, you can walk away and it'll eventually finish. It'll eventually become dry. The term dry means that every bit of uh, sweetness in that particular juice sample Mm -hmm. has been converted into alcohol. That's what the term dry means, Mm -hmm. technically speaking. So what's the difference between dry and brute? Oh boy, I you know I don't know a lot about champagne, and that's you're getting into champagne realm there. That's right. So that's I, right. Yeah, and I I you don't really make champagne. Do, I do not. No, no. Well, first of all, you can't make champagne in this country. You okay, can make sparkling wine. Yes, yes, you can yes. Make sparkling wine. You can't call it champagne in this country. But there are some winemakers even here in the valley, in the Ohio River Valley, that are making excellent, excellent sparkling wine. Valley Vineyards for one. Joe Hankey on the west side of town at Hankey Winery makes a wonderful bubbly. So mm-hmm. uh, I do not. It's a whole new. It's a whole nother science that I don't 
I just don't want to take the time to learn it, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Okay. Uh, I happen to enjoy a good brute, so. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Mike. No problem. No problem. So we were talking about uh, the types of the different grapes, grapes that you grow. Yes. So the red grapes that you grow are? Uh, Cabernet Funk, mm-hmm. which is the original Cabernet. Cabernet Franc was around before Cabernet Sauvignon was around, okay. even though now most people, when you say Cabernet, they automatically think Cabernet Sauvignon. But Cabernet Franc was actually uh, around a lot longer than Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, we grow Cabernet Franc only because it's a little more winter hardy. That's the only vinifera variety that we grow out at Harmony Hill, vinifera being fine European wine grapes, those being Chardonnay, Cabernet, Shiraz, uh, Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Gris, it's those are all of the what they call vinifera. Vinifera, Fine, yeah, vinifera. We have a rule we, here in Sandler that you define you a, a define, buzzword before you use it. So, so these are the fine wines. What, these, what is a Merlot then? Merlot is a vinifera. Oh, yes, that's exactly right. You yeah, grow that? Merlot, so I do not. No, you can't. There, I don't know of anybody in the Ohio River Valley that's able to grow Merlot. It doesn't have a low enough uh, temperature threshold to make it through our winters. Oh, in other words, the vines are going to die. The vines are going to die. And we've had a plenty. We've replaced 1,500 vines already in our vineyard because we experimented with a lot of different varieties when we first got started to figure out what we could grow and what we couldn't. Mm. And we have uh, pulled up 1,500 and replanted 1,500 new vines. Now, are you using uh, uh, just uh, natural rainwater or are you doing irrigation? No, the, the... Grapevines are so tolerant of um, of uh, drought; they don't need water. I'm I'm happiest when the ground is separated about an inch, and all of my grass is dead brown, and that's when the grapevines are the happiest. The more water, actually, the worse it is. Now they irrigate in California, of course, because of the fact that they have that sandy, silty soil that the water just absolutely percolates right through. But ours are our vines. Our vines here are drawn from water sources that are, you know, they may be 24, 30 inches deep. That's how deep the, the roots of that deep. Drawn. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So if someone's interested in contacting you after the show uh-huh. uh, at Harmony Hill, how do they do that? Well, we have a website. We also have a Facebook presence. The, web- the website is? The website is uh, hhwines.com. That's nice and simple. Yeah, HH for Harmony Hill, hhwines.com. And then we have a Facebook presence. It's called, um, I think it's called Friends of Harmony Hill or something similar to that. But if you just go on Facebook and plug in Harmony Hill Vineyards, it will come up. We have about, I don't know, a 1,000 or so followers there. We, I feel real fortunate. We just recently reached a milestone for the amount of people that have visited our website, and we're at 120,000 people that have That's great. visited our website. I mean, for a small, you know, for a small mom and pop winery in the Ohio River Valley, I'm 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 pretty excited that we've been able to touch that many people. So, so can I uh, go on your website and order a, a case of wine? In Ohio, you can yes, and you can ship it like UPS. I can ship it UPS. Actually, it has to go through a certified shipper in one of the wine stores in my area out there. Uh, acts as uh, on behalf of my certified shipper. Well, we can't ship out of state. 
it gets very complicated. You have to have so, a So let's pretend I wanted to ship to my daughter in New York. Yeah. I can bu- buy the wine from you. Have a, you ship it to me here in yes. Eastgate. And then I have no idea what you do with it after that. I get it. Put a, my daughter's address on it and ship it to New York. You got it. Gotcha. You got it. Good. Again, Bill has uh, agreed to answer questions from listeners. Uh, we're going to screen the calls during this next commercial break. The call-in number is 646-595-4916. And I think what we're going to do is listen to a Sandler commercial or two. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. You've heard our commercials about sales and sales management, but you haven't made the call for some reason. Maybe you're having your best year ever. Maybe you think a sales development company won't work in your industry. You're different. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Maybe you're afraid that if you called, you'd buy something. If you're happy with all your sales and profits and believe you have all the answers or simply don't see yourself investing in yourself or your people, then don't make the call. We have nothing for you. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, mentoring, business owners, and sales professionals who are serious about their careers. So if you believe that Sandler Sales Training might make you better, faster, meaner, and stronger, call me at 513-646-6523 or register for our next open house, Roth & Associates, the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. You can check us at www.rothconsulting.net. This message is short and to the point. In business, you don't get paid for what you know. You get paid for what you sell. Yet many salespeople leave their skills to chance. They often think, let me think it over. They write proposals that go nowhere. They lower their price to get the order. They wind up chasing prospects through the voicemail maze. It doesn't have to be that way. The best salespeople were not born great. They learned it. I'm Mike Roth of Roth & Associates. We're famous for our expensive, difficult sales training. We're not for everyone. We build the best sales prospectors and sales negotiators on the planet. Are you in sales? Are you ready to get deadly serious about your career that feeds your family? Are you ready to make a change? Call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523. Sandler's most experienced trainer in Cincinnati. 646-6523. This is Mike Roth and Bill Scavala. Yes, better. Better, wow. Uh, Bill, I don't think we finished on the types of wine grapes that you're growing. Yes, uh, we mentioned, I think, two. We have a few more that we grow. We grow. And I do want to go and talk a little bit about the two dessert wines that you're making. Right, right. We'll we'll talk about those at the end. I'm trying to work through my mind of the ones that, uh, in level, by level of sweetness. We talked about the Chardonnay-style dry white. We talked about the Cabernet Franc, which is the vinifera dry red. We also make a, another dry red called Rubato. Rubato is actually 100% Chambresin. It's a French-American hybrid that is made uh, from uh, Pinot Noir, so it has a lot of the same qualities as a good Pinot with a black cherry and a little bit of leather and tobacco. That's the flavors that you get when you drink that mm-hmm. wine. But um, the other thing I wanted to mention before we continue to talk about the varieties, so since we're talking about Pinot Noir and the dry reds, the 
the wine cave at the at the Harmony Hill is really kind of unique. It's one of the few, very few underground wine caves in the. Uh, what is a wine cave? It's actually an underground structure where our red wines and our white wines are both um, uh, aged, and in the case of the white wines, fermented. Do you actually build the yes. cave? Yes. Yeah, we actually build a cave at Harmony Hill. Yeah. You excavated down. It's, yes, we excavated down in the ground, and then we took what what was similar to a bridge work, uh, preconstructed concrete arches, mm-hmm. and we uh, butted them all up against each other to make a long cylinder that we then backfilled with soil over top. So they call it a cut and cover style wine mm-hmm. cave. It's not actually excavated into the side of a hill with a big giant uh, auger like they do out in California, but instead the ground is excavated out, a deep hole is dug. You put a footer in for the ground or for the floor and to accept the the, uh, bottoms of the concrete arches. And then they're 35,000 pounds a piece. They just come out with a big crane. They set these concrete arches in place. And essentially what you have is the old Nicholas Longworth style wine cave Mm -hmm. where the arched uh, concrete ceilings on the inside. So what does Nicholas Longworth mean here? Nick, I'm sorry. Yes, Nicholas Longworth. A lot of people don't realize that. Uh, That's you know, like Longworth Hall. Yeah, like Longworth same Hall, guy. University of Cincinnati. Yes, same guy. A lot of people don't realize, especially in Cincinnati, that they uh, even to this day they consider the uh, Cincinnati and the Ohio River Valley Appalachian the birthplace of the American wine industry. Everybody thinks Napa, but Napa didn't come around until the '60s. We were producing, you know, tens and thousands of cases of uh, of wine back in the uh, mid 1850s uh, the there are still some of the original Nicholas Longworth wine caves um, in Alms Park in Mount Adams uh, so they said if you could compare what Nicholas Longworth did he had 3,000 acres of grapes from Cincinnati all the way out to New Richmond along the Ohio River Valley. Mm-hmm. And they say if you could compare his net worth back then to someone today, he would be three. He would be three times the worth of Bill Gates. Wow, that's how uh, how well he was doing. His red, his wines, his uh, golden wedding wine was served to uh, emperors and kings all over the world back in the 1800s. So. Good. That's Nicholas Longworth. I'm okay, saying. so so your wine cave, you have one of them or more? We have one. And yes. how deep on the ground is it? It has about 28 inches of thermal mass over top of it. Mm-hmm. It's not as deep as I would like it to be, but when you consider that we put it on top of the hill and directly adjacent to the winery, we had to work with what we had. We reached a solid limestone, and for... Three days, we had big, giant excavating machines beating away <laughs> at the solid limestone to even try to get it down that far. I mean, you, but you, it serves its purpose. You it's, didn't use dynamite? <laughs> no, we did, yeah, we didn't use dynamite or C4. The, the big advantage to that, Michael, is that what happens is it's, it's naturally air-conditioned. It's naturally heated. So in the winter, even when right outside the door, it's in the teens inside the wine cave. I think the coldest it's ever gotten in there is maybe 48 or 49 degrees, the coldest it's ever got. And the warmest it gets, it runs anywhere between 50 and 70, 50 and 68 degrees. Okay, uh, so it's kind of like a natural refrigerator. Yes, refrigerator. yes absolutely. 
and the wine, the red wine that we make is the it's the best wine I've ever made has come out of a cave. So it really? makes it really makes a difference. Wine likes to sit in a constant temperature. It doesn't like any variations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it it's the red wine is very happy underground. Why don't you tell us how you bottle the wine? You had twelve hundred cases? Yeah, twelve hundred cases. And, a year. and there were twelve bottles per case. Twelve bottles per case. Everything is done by hand on the hill. We harvest by hand. Actually we were harvested tomorrow morning. Um, but everything is uh, harvested by hand. We so bottle. how many people are you going to have go out and harvest tomorrow morning? Well, this will actually be the third harvest for this uh, particular vintage. Mm-hmm. We're still taking the white uh, grapes out. And tomorrow, I think, we'll probably end up pulling about three and a half tons of grapes. It's not a lot of fruit to come out tomorrow. So tomorrow we may have ten pickers, most of them volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, we pick by hand. We crush by hand, we bottle by hand, we label by hand, we cork by hand. Everything at the winery is... So you're still using real corks? Yes, we are. Yeah, we still use natural corks. I don't use the synthetics at all. So when you say you you, you press the wine, you have those people (laughs) stepping on it like Lucy? Yeah, like Lucy. No, actually, we have a a machine that does that. We have a stainless steel machine that uh, is called a crusher to stemmer, and it separates the stems from the grapes and... Uh, out of the bottom comes popped popped fruit with a uh, mixture of seeds and skin. So it's actually pretty fascinating. So it's curious. What, what do you do with the uh, the discard? It gets spread back in the vineyard. It gets spread in our agricultural fields. That mm-hmm. would be a combination of the seeds and the skins and whatever's left after we've pressed off the juice. Because once fermentation is done, especially with the red wines, once fermentation is done, then the skins are pressed in a big, giant bladder press. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what comes out of the bottom of the bladder press is finished wine. Mm-hmm. And then all of that solid waste, I referred to that earlier with the EPA, that's the solid waste that we had to submit proposals of to to, to take care of on our farm. So, so what are you doing with it? Spreading it in the field. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just seeds and skins. It's so all it's fertilizer. It's Yes, it's probably less uh, caustic than manure. Okay. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that's what we do. We use it either. We 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 grow our own blueberries, which we were going to get to with the uh, dessert wines. We grow our own blueberries, mm-hmm. so a lot of the uh, the blueberries like it very acid. So mm-hmm. we'll take a lot of the the uh, grape. What's left after the press uh, is done, and we'll take that press load and throw it on the on the base of the blueberry plants as well. And then it breaks down, breaks down over the winter, and next spring it's gone. So, so have we covered all of the? We have it. Right. We still have a couple more varieties. I'll just go through those real quick. We talked about Chamberson, which is the Pinot Noir. Uh, there's another grape called Vidal Blanc. Vidal Blanc makes, uh, well, I use it to make a, a Riesling-style white that's about 2% residual sugar and has all of them apples and pears that you would get out of, of fine Alsatian Riesling. So um, that's one. And we just put a new variety in now called Bianca. Bianca is a it's a Hungarian grape that makes a Sauvignon Blanc style white. So I don't even know what the wine will be like, but we've got the grapes in the vineyard to do it now. So how, how long will it be before you harvest that one? We'll probably take a small crop next year, uh, mm-hmm. just so I can uh, do some experimentation and make some small batches of white wine with it. Um, I'd like to do some aged in oak and some aged in stainless steel. Uh, so probably uh, we'll take a small crop next year, but ideally we'll let everything, we'll cut all the fruit off until the third year. And at the third year, you start taking a, a, a smaller crop, about 
probably 40% of what that vine's potential is. The whole idea being, Mike, once you once you put a vine in the ground, you want to nurture it through those first three years because every year it drives that root system deeper and deeper and it stabilizes and, and the plant becomes more and more healthy. A grapevine will live for 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like the... Uh, it's not like growing corn and soybeans where you're putting a bunch of seeds in the ground year after year. Once you have a vineyard established, the hope is that you it outlives you, So, mm-hmm. which will probably be the case in my case for sure. Okay. Uh, Bill has agreed to ask questions. There will be one more opportunity for call screening. In a few minutes, you can call in on 646-595-4916. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about the two dessert wines that you make. We make two dessert wines. We grow blueberries. Actually, we make uh, three dessert wines. We have the peach trees are, are grown right beside the winery. We make a peach dessert wine called Don Song that's mm. about 18% alcohol, very sweet. It's about uh, 7 or 8% residual sugar. Mm-hmm. So, But it's a dessert wine. It's not a wine that's meant to be drank like a table wine would or a dinner wine would. And the Just little a glass. tiny little that, that thin bottle. You got it. It's the long, skinny, they call them halves. It's ice wine. 375 uh, ml bottle, just like ice wine that you would have gotten up in uh, the in New York. The, in New York, in the Finger Lakes. Yes, same bottle. They call them Bellissima style bottles. Uh, we make a really sexy looking uh, package out of that. And um, it has, uh, uh, those really sell at Christmas time, Mike, because they're, they're a, they're not real expensive. They make an excellent uh, gift. You just stick a bow on the top of the bottle, and because of the packaging, it just makes a great great Christmas gift. We also make a, a blueberry from. So can I order it online? <laughs> you can. Yeah. You, we also make a blueberry that's actually fermenting right now back at the uh, farm, and we make a wild blackberry that's grow that's a fermenting as well. So we'll release all of these for the Thanksgiving barrel sampling every year on the hill and the three or four other wineries in the valley, we do a what's called a uh, barrel sampling event where we open our caves up or our cellars up and people can actually come to the winery and sample wine directly out of the barrel. So you're drinking raw, unfinished wine. Unfinished, on. Unfiltered. Unfinished, unfiltered, yes, absolutely. Wow. And what it does, it gives you a hint of what that wine will be like in the following. So what is the date coming up? That, uh... that it's always the, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And okay, our, so good. So this will be our Friday. Eighth, eighth we go on yeah. to the, your Black Friday sales. Thursday, you do the dinner with the family. Right. Friday, you go to the shopping centers and shop until you drop. And then Saturday, people have visitors in town and they're usually looking for something to do. So this is the excellent opportunity to get the whole family together, go out to a place. And, and how do they email you to get a reminder about that? They just go through the website and just get added to the um, – our website will have an announcement about that. We usually run a couple ads. Ads right around that time, there's uh, four wineries in the valley that do that. So, um, and again, it's an opportunity to get to talk to the winemakers. Mm-hmm. You're not just you know talking to uh, talking to one of the tasting staff, but you get to, to interact with the winemakers at the same time, and they get to tell you about the wines that they're pouring out of barrels. So that's a that's a fantastic event. Yeah, it's a fun fun event. It's one of our biggest days of the season, and that will again, I'm not sure exactly the date. A number date this year, but it's always the first Saturday after Thanksgiving. We call it the Thanksgiving Ohio River Valley Barrel Sampling Event. Good. We're going to uh, take a short break here, and we're going to 
listen to uh, a San LaRue, then I listen to San LaRue number four. Hi, I'm Gary Harvey with Sandler Training. I'm here to discuss with you today rule number four. A decision not to make a decision is making a decision. Have you ever yourself, have you gone out shopping for something, you had a salesperson show you whatever it is you're looking for, and you really have an interest to buy, but you're not really sure. Flip side, you may actually realize you really don't want to buy it, but you don't want to hurt their feelings. So you use the most proverbial words in sales that salespeople don't want to hear, but they're willing to accept called the proverbial think it over. I'm a firm believer in all the salespeople that I have coached throughout my career. But that really is a code for the word a slow no. I had a client recently that was proposing a fairly large project to a prospect. Prospect said, gee, you looked interesting. We have a lot of interest in what you're offering. And by the way, we really like you. So one of the things that made him feel like I've got it. So they said, let us get back to you the next week. But this looks really good, but we do need to think it over. We're a firm believer at Sandler Training that if it's going to be a think it over, nine out of ten times, it's going to be a no, but they don't want to tell you that. We're also firm believers that if it's going to be a no, we all know this intellectually, don't we? We want to know right up front. But emotionally, we don't want to hear those words. So plant your feet, stand your ground, and be willing to say to a potential client, with all due respect, Mr. and Mrs. Prospect, that decision not to make a decision really is making a decision. And it's a no in my world, and it's okay to tell me that. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Bill Scavala. Got it right that yes. time. Uh, Bill, we have a theory of operation here that simple solutions to complex problems are rarely correct and rarely, rarely solve the problem. So if you want to solve a complex problem, you have to use an equally complex solution. Perhaps you could share with our, our audience, a from a winemaker's perspective, a complex problem that you ran into and the complex solution you used to solve it. Yeah, actually, I have a perfect one, and it it ties right into the fact that we're harvesting grapes again tomorrow. When you send the grapes through the crusher destemmer that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which was the machine that uh, separates the the stems from the meat and the seeds and everything else, the when we first opened the winery, when we first went commercial back in two thousand and three. We had that machine in a parking lot and a a ladder of about four steps that you had to grab a 30-pound lug of grapes and you had to carry it up the steps and you had to dump it into the hopper in the top of the machine. And by the end of the harvest season, when you were, you know, you had harvested 15, 16, 17 tons of grapes out of the vineyard and carried each one of those lugs up and dumped them into that uh, crusher to stemmer one at a time, I realized that I couldn't continue at that rate. So what we did is the same area that was excavated out to put the cave in now had a a big uh, open patio in front of the cave where we have tables where people can go and sit. And so it was a natural depression in the ground that was about 12 feet deep. So what we did back in 2005 is we put the crusher to stemmer down 12 feet below the ground level, and then the uh, essentially a trough so that the grape lugs are then taken off of pallets. They're dumped at waist level onto a trough. They roll down into the crusher to stemmer. They roll down. 
they rolled down the crusher to stemmer into the top of the hopper, and then there's no none of this over the shoulder. You don't have to lift anything up over the shoulder. So that was an essentially a very simple solution. Oh yeah, that's, a, that's an OSHA compatible solution, that's an, and it's an OSHA solution as well. Yes, yes. So that has been that would probably be my one example of. Uh, of a complex problem that we had at the winery that we overcame mm-hmm. uh, with just a little ingenuity, a little thought. So you, you bottled 12,000, 1,200 12, 12, cases, cases yes. and you glue on the labels, you put yes. corks in, yes. seal the bottles. Yes. How do you sell them? 97% of our wine is sold across a tasting bar. We do maintain some retail stores, not many. Our marketing uh, scheme, our marketing at the winery currently is we invite you to, I don't serve food. A lot of wineries are full full service restaurants. I don't serve food, but I encourage you instead to bring your own. Mm -hmm. Our visitors are welcome to bring their food to the winery. We have music every single time that we're open, live music. Uh, Our venue is basically you come out, you buy a bottle of wine, you bring your own food, you sit, you kick back, you listen to some really, really talented musicians in Southwest Ohio. For, so, so when is your winery open for this kind of uh, endeavor? October the 5th was our last day of the season. Mm-hmm. Last Saturday was the last day of the season for us. So we're closed now until the barrel sampling event the, the day after Thanksgiving, and then we are permanently closed until the first weekend of May. We're only open May through October. So you're open weekends. That's correct. Weekends only. Friday nights, uh, 5 to 9, and Saturday from 2 to 9. Live music every time that we're open. But we sell, most of our wine is sold at the uh, out of the winery. And come March of 2014, if history repeats itself, we will, we will be sold out of almost everything from the 2013 vintage, which is the way we like it, so... Do you hold back any reserve? I'm sorry, not the 2013, 2012 vintage, because we'll be releasing 2013's vintage in March of 2014. We do hold back some. I'm not as good as I should be about my library, but if if wines are especially um, flavorful to me or some challenge challenge of some kind uh, was encountered in making that wine. I'll hold bottles of that back for myself just to see how they mature with time. So, mm-hmm. but our wines, our wines, pretty much, boy, uh, they're, they're about the time that the same year that they're released, they're sold. They're sold so, out. Yeah. So ninety-seven percent goes out at the winery. Ninety-seven percent is sold across the tasting bar at the winery. Yes. And then- only three percent wind up in, in yes. retail stores. That's exactly what right. retail stores handle the wine? We are in uh, Jungle Gyms here in East. Carolina. Oh, good. We are in uh, Kroger's in Amelia. We are in Wild, uh, not no longer Wild Oats, Whole Foods in Rookwood Commons. Mm-hmm. We are in uh, some small IGA grocery stores, mm-hmm. uh, and we are in a couple wine shops, but. Actually, we don't have a big retail presence. The only reason that I even started with a retail stores to begin with is because our customers that had, you know, been able to enjoy Harmony Hill wine all summer long, then all of a sudden we close the doors in October and they can't get it anymore, and they were getting angry with me. So that's why we started to release uh, the wines to the retail stores. To be honest with you, if I pushed, I could probably sell 100% of our wines across the tasting bar. Mm-hmm. 
So, what are your plans to expand the output beyond 1,200 cases? You know, I, Michael, I don't really have any plans to do that. We, I like the production level where it is. Our winery was only intended to be a supplemental income for my wife and I to supplement our retirements. Um, I'm 60 years old and feeling like I'm 80, and the vineyard will do that to you. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have no intentions at this time of expanding any no larger. Kids in the wine business with you? No, we don't have any children. Yeah, Patty and I, we have five four-legged beasts that run around the house, but we we don't have any kids that take over the take over the business in our absence. So you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, when I lived in California, we would go to wineries in uh, Napa Valley, and I like to go to the smaller ones. Uh-huh. And we went to the smaller ones. You get out of the car, there was always like a dog or two sitting in the lawn. You got it. And the dogs were always slow. (laughs) And I would wonder about that until I went to this one winery in a barn, and we took the tour of the barn, saw saw how he was making wine. And we went to the tasting bar, and we tasted a couple of uh, samples, and and I didn't like it. So I said, I don't see a a spittoon here where you get rid of the wine so, so you can take the next one. And the lady behind the bar says, no problem. She opens the window behind it, throws out, throws out the line. Yeah. And, and I look down, and there's one of the dogs. <laughs> now I understood why the dogs yes. are a little bit slow. Yes, yes, yes. And Even no. just eating fermented grapes that have sat on the... Because a lot of the wineries, you know, when they harvest, they'll leave the grapes, they'll... They'll cut the fruit that isn't perfectly ripe off of mm-hmm. the vines like we do and then let it sit on the ground. Well, then the dogs come and clean up after it. Some of it has already started to ferment. So, yes, they have the, quite the opportunity to get some uh, pretty high alcohol uh, contents in their diet while they live on a, live on a winery. So. so how many employees do you have at the winery? Right now we have 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have 12 employees. I have four people that help me in the vineyard. I have, um, uh, I think, uh, eight. It must be eight. Eight uh, in the tasting bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had as many as a thousand people on that hilltop up there at one time. At one time, yeah. Wow. It gets pretty. It gets pretty crazy. Um, our big, our big days are, uh, of course, the grand opening every summer, and then this past, uh, this past Saturday, the. Fifth, where it was our last day of the season, because mm-hmm. everybody knows it's the last big hurrah before mm-hmm. winter sets in, and they come out and listen to the listen to the music. And we have one particular group that comes out, uh, a father and daughter duo by the name of Anna and Milovan. They come out and they draw a big crowd. Just uh, a dual action attraction. Yes, absolutely, it is. Plus, you know, then you're you have the ability to sit out there in the country. We have a mile and a half of walking trails in the back of the farm. You're allowed by law because my whole farm is an alcohol premise. You're allowed to carry that glass of wine around with you, mm-hmm. um, and you know, walk through our our farm is actually a a, a certified wildlife preserve. So really, yeah, it's a National Wildlife Federation has. A, we have a big giant placard on the wall up there. It's a it's a uh, uh, a natural habitat. So that's great. And the deer don't eat uh, wine. Do grapes? I what? the deer? Do they eat the wine? No, actually, the grapes aren't. Uh, deer aren't big fruit eaters. I mean, they'll they'll peck away at the uh, the, the foliage, the green stuff mm-hmm. on the vines, but they're not real big fruit eaters. So 
And once you get a vineyard established, you get 3,500 vines. They're actually doing you a favor by starting to take the leaves out for you because we go through and manually remove leaves from the from the grapevines and extra shoots and stuff. So to force more liquid That's into exactly the grape. Right. Well, okay. not the, so much a liquid, but it's just they call it the green to grape ratio. You wanna if you have so much green that if you have so much green growing stuff that so the the grapes won't ripen up as well as they should. So you have hmm. to balance the the amount of fruit to the amount of canopy that's in the vineyard. So. So, well, I like to ask guests, Bill, uh, one last question. Can you give our listeners, other CEOs like yourself, a fast leadership tip? Well, you know, if I had to name one thing that was successful for us, I would say it was going above and beyond with customer service. People know when they come to the winery that they're going to have a good experience, and we are at it. We are adamant about our uh, staff um, knowing that uh, the the whole idea of uh, sampling wine at the tasting bar should be fun. We do everything we possibly can to make the, our customers comfortable while they're there, and uh, the guests pay us back fourfold. So that's good. High customer service. High customer service. Good, Bill. I'm going to give. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I'm giving you a copy of. Dave Matson's Sandler book, The 49 Sandler Rules. In the book, you'll find a million dollars. We help people make that. And the class calendar and a free pass as a guest to one of the classes on the calendar. Bill, again, thanks for uh, being on the show. And Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400.